0: Hey everyone, Brock here. Unfortunately, I haven't had a lot of time free to be able to edit and make new videos and the audio only version for you guys. So what I wanted to try and do is clean up the audio and upload one of the live classes that we had a few weeks back in which we sort of wrap up the respiratory system and we discuss gas exchange and how it is our body is able to to transport oxygen and carbon dioxide. Enjoy. So we are going to be looking at the three gas laws. Again, fortunately, we've already done one of these. Um, we're going to be focusing on the other two. One will be particularly important. We're going to go into great depth on that. Uh, and the second one, not so much. It's uh, But we're going to be, um, it's not so much important that you know the law itself, but more so like what it means. That seems a bit vague, seems a bit weird, but we'll um, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. We're going to be looking at the different lung volumes and different capacities um, that are available to us with our lungs. We're going to be looking at the composition of air at the alveolar level and also sort of vaguely at an atmospheric level. We're just going to compare those uh, a little bit. We're going to spend a whole heck of a heap of time looking at the movement of oxygen and carbon dioxide throughout the body um, because that's where things get a little bit squirrely. That's when things are a bit tricky to get our head around. Um... We're going to be looking at how they are transported in the blood, the mechanism of gas exchange and a bit of the biochemistry behind that. Um, then we'll finish up looking at sort of um, VQ coupling. So ventilation, perfusion coupling and looking at uh, looking at VQ coupling and um, how sort of ventilation and perfusion are linked together when it comes to the lungs. All right. Now, a lot of this stuff I'm going to really speed through, um, quite quickly just because, um, we did a lot of this last week. So, you know, pulmonary ventilation, so pulmonary meaning lungs, ventilation, meaning to ventilate, to move air and air will move down its pressure gradient. So when we are breathing in the intrapulmonary pressure is lower than that of atmospheric pressure. So it's going to move into our lungs. Expiration, intrapulmonary pressure is higher. So it's going to go out. Now, normal atmospheric pressure is around one atmosphere, especially for us who live on the coast. And we just need to be aware that 760 millimeters of mercury is the same as one atmosphere. Boyle's law, we've covered that extensively looking at the inverse relationship between pressure and volume. So as uh, volume goes up, pressure goes down, or if volume goes down, pressure goes up. So movement of the chest and looking at these respiratory muscles, we've already done that last week. So again, looking at sort of the mastoid and scalenes, how they can sort of help pull the chest up and out, and our obliques help to sort of push that diaphragm up during forced exhalation to push that air out. Quiet inspiration and expiration, we've already covered, especially looking at that expiration is being driven by elastic recoil and the surface tension in the alveoli. So when we wish to do a passive exhalation to breathe out, what's going to happen is, is that obviously the elasticity of our lungs is going to help squeeze in, reduce that volume and help us breathe out as well as that surface tension within the alveoli. So what's important to note here is that with our um, surfactant, it helps to reduce that Um, surface tension, not remove it entirely. Which comes to lung compliance. Now I mentioned this a little bit, little, little bit last week, but not too much. But lung compliance essentially is giving um, a term to like how stretchy and how flexible our lungs are. So the easier that our lungs are to sort of stretch and expand, the easier it is for us to fill up with air and thus breathe. So they are reliant on two main factors. So like tissue and chest wall stretch again, to sort of increase that compliance, to stretch open, increase that volume moving air in. And the, like looking at surface attention or looking at changes to that elasticity will decrease that compliance. Now, where we also see two issues with say, um, lung compliance is in lung disease. So for instance, like, um, If we're looking at emphysema, that's where sort of that lung compliance is dramatically reduced, sort of that the ability for these alveoli to expand and constrict, which is obviously a huge issue when you're trying to, you know, breathe. And that is why people with emphysema really struggle to push air into and out of their lungs. Now, forced inspiration and forced expiration, we've already done that. So we're going to soldier on. Um, and just a recap on interpleural pressure. So remember we've got that pleural cavity with, um, which surrounds our lungs and it's kind of what holds the lungs to the chest. So as we are pulling these, the ribs and our chest sort of up and out and expanding that volume, the lungs are going to follow suit. So in the event of say like pneumothorax here, um, what going to happen there is that that's when that, uh, negative pressure, when we compare the. Interpleural pressure and that uh, (sighs) interpulmonary. Let's do that again. So, when we are comparing the uh, interpleural pressure with the intrapulmonary pressure, the intrapleural pressure must be lower than that of the intrapulmonary pressure, so it sort of sticks on it like a suction cup. If we don't see that pressure difference there, What's going to happen is that essentially the lungs will sort of detach. And it means that when our um, chest expands out, when we're trying to do a big breath in, the lungs won't follow suit. Okay. And that's essentially a collapsed lung. Now, airway resistance. Now, again, something I've said from the, from the get-go, structure equals function. Okay. The structure of our airways is very similar to that of our blood vessels. And their overall function is very similar as well, except with our bronchioles, it is responsible for sort of conducting and moving air. Whereas with our blood vessels, it's moving blood. However, airway resistance is, you know, somewhat controllable and a big factor in the movement of air in the same way that our peripheral resistance played a big role in our movement of blood in our blood vessels. Now, airway resistance is, um, affected by the combined diameter of all of our conducting airways. So they all sort of work together in that regard. So even though when we are looking at our, um, sort of our, our trachea and as we're moving down through our, uh, bronchioles, even though, yes, they are getting smaller and smaller and smaller, which indeed would be increasing that airway resistance, it's sort of a bit of a trade-off because we have so many more bronchioles. So yes, if we compare just one bronchiole to the trachea, uh, the bronchiole has way more airway resistance, and it's, there's no way it can move as much air. But what we keep in mind is that it's not just one bronchiole. We have heaps and heaps and heaps of them. So it, it means that collectively we can still move plenty of air. However, we still do have control over our airway resistance, So, in the same way that we can control peripheral resistance with our blood vessels by doing vasoconstriction or vasodilation, airway resistance can be increased or decreased by bronchoconstriction or bronchodilation. And that's something we're going to be talking about a little bit more when we get to VQ coupling. Now, another thing too which can cause an increase in airway resistance, which for the most part is sort of unwanted, um, would be mucosal swelling or accumulation of phlegm. So let's say if we've got a chest infection, we've got sort of peep of mucus in our chest. Um, it can make it really hard to sort of really breathe air and move air in. We have to try harder to put that air in there because all of that mucus is basically just causing increased, um, resistance there. And of course, as I mentioned, bronchoconstriction also causes an increase in our airway, airway resistance and For those of you who may have asthma, that's sort of uncontrolled bronchoconstriction, which is why if, you know, someone's having a full blown asthma attack, it just sounds awful. It just sounds as though they just really can't pull air into their chest. They've got that real horrible wheeze because essentially they've got this uncontrolled bronchoconstriction and they're really struggling to pull air in, which is why when they have their, say, Ventolin, okay, like a a beta 2 agonist that's going to bind to it, it causes that bronchodilation, which is why then suddenly, oh, they can, they can breathe again. Now surface tension and looking at surfactant, I'm going to skip through those because we did do those last week and we're already a bit sort of under the pump with time as it were. So I'm going to be skipping now to our lung volume and capacities. Now this wonderful graph is going to be linked to this wonderful table, but something I just want to be sort of clear here is that we do not need to memorize all of these numbers. The only exception to that would be probably tidal volume. Um, All the other measurements don't really worry about it because they fluctuate so much depending on, you know, the size of the person. So for instance, me personally, my vital capacity, it's saying for an average male uh, or an average adult male should be around 4.8 liters. Mine is much higher than that. Mine is probably 10 and a half, I think 10 and a half liters. So, uh, but in saying that too, I do have very big lungs. I've got a big chest. So, uh, these values are very much averages and very much, you know, will fluctuate depending on a person's size. So if we're looking at this wonderful graph here of our lung volumes and our lung capacities, we can see this little curve here in the middle. That is our tidal volume. Now, What the title volume essentially describes is our quiet inspiration and expiration. Excuse me. So it's sort of breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. Doing some dope meditation. We breathe in, breathe out, and then (gasps) breathe in big spike, big, big, big spike. And what that is, is our inspiratory capacity. Essentially that is saying after a passive exhalation, how much air I can forcibly squeeze and breathe into my lungs. Now compare this to say the inspiratory reserve volume. What this is, is say I do a passive inhale. So I breathe in, then I go breathe in. and then breathe in again, and sort of do that forced inspiration. So our Inspiratory Reserve Volume kind of explains like how much uh, how much breathing in we got left in the tank after our regular inhalation. So again, we do this big breath in, And then exhale normally, then breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in Breathe out. (laughs) So that's sort of the normal breath in and then you push that air out of your lungs. Sort of like you do a normal breath in and then you blow out the birthday candles. So this is your expiratory reserve volume. So this describes the amount of air that you can push out of your lungs after a passive exhalation. Now, you'll notice that we still have this residual volume, okay? This is the amount of air that still remains in your lungs after a forced expiration. So to be clear, to get to like this point, you're basically curled over and you feel as though you're blowing air out of every part of your body. Right? There will still be some air left over in the lungs. We cannot breathe all of it out. Uh, And nor do we want to, Because the last thing we want is sort of to breathe all that air out, turn our lungs basically into a vacuum and cause them to kind of stick shut and sort of glue together. We can't open our lungs again. Okay, that's that's obviously very bad. Um, So, yeah, we do have some residual volume, which does play a little bit of havoc. We'll be having to talk about that a little bit more, especially when we look at our air compositions. Now the last two, we have our vital capacity. So vital capacity is essentially, I breathe in as much as I can, and then I exhale all of it. So it's sort of a, so sort of huge breath in and then huge breath out. Okay. Basically showing the maximum amount of air that I can voluntarily push out and move. Okay. That's our vital capacity. The total lung capacity is our vital capacity, but also our residual volume, sort of the the remaining parts of air in our lungs. Now, again, all of the things that I've just described here um, are in this table, as well as a little explanation. Um, I would expect you guys to definitely be able to recognize and interpret this graph and understand what's going on and be able to link these lovely little squiggles here with our various volumes and capacities here. Okay, moving on. Sorry, sorry guys, it feels as though I'm sort of just, just slamming through these things really fast. It's just, yeah, this this is a really jam packed lesson. Normally I I used to spread this out over three hours, but we've only got two hours today. Now I'm going to be comparing different ventilation rates here, looking at sort of our uh, minute ventilation rate versus our alveolar ventilation rate. Um, I will not expect you guys to do any calculations regarding this. I just kind of want to like sort of show and compare you what the effect can be based on different breathing habits. So for instance, if we look at our various um, minute ventilation rate, it's essentially looking at our regular tidal volume and we multiply that by our rate of respiration. So if we've got 500 times 12, or a thousand times six, that's 6,000. So it means that if we have an average tidal volume of 500 mil, we're breathing 12 times a minute, we are moving six liters of air per minute. Now, this minute ventilation rate is not to be confused with our alveolar ventilation rate, because what our alveolar ventilation rate is essentially saying the flow of gas that can get right down into the alveoli. Now, couple of things here. One, that is not the same thing as what we were looking at over here, okay? And I'll explain why in a moment. Secondly, we need to take into account that we have that dead space and we also have any residual air left over in our lungs. Because when we are breathing, especially just our regular tidal volume, we are not sort of going and breathing all in and then exhaling everything that we can out. So it means that when we breathe in, there's still going to be some of that old air that's still in our lungs that we need to try and move and and get rid of. Um, Now, something to keep in mind when we're looking at these three modes of breathing. So we have our normal rate and depth of breathing. We have our slow, calm, deep breathing. And then we've got our, um, our panicked, shallow breathing. So in our normal rate of breathing, we're moving 500 milliliters of air. So that's our tidal volume and we're breathing on average 20 times per minute. So again, these, these fluctuate obviously from person to person. Um, so what we can see here is 500 500ml times 20 breaths per minute is gonna give us an overall ventilation rate of 10 liters per minute. Cool. Now you'll notice across our normal rate of breathing, slow deep breathing, or our rapid and shallow breathing, we are moving technically the same amount of air in and out. However, look at our ventilation rates. These are changing dramatically. So when we've got our regular tidal volume here with our normal rate and depth of breathing, um, what we see here is only 70% effective ventilation, which again is because of that dead space and old air that we've got in our lungs. Uh, Do we need to know the MV formula from the previous slides? Lung volumes and capacity. Do we need to know how to do any calculations? Um, What we're looking at here, um, to be able to do any calculations, um, yes, I would expect that. But that's also what I was getting at with uh, referring to and interpreting this graph here. So, for instance, if we're looking at our inspiratory capacity, that is a combination of our uh, tidal volume and our inspiratory reserve volume. Also, I'm sorry if you hear background noise, it's uh, school holidays and yeah. <laughs> now, if we come back to looking at our alveolar ventilation rates, because of that sort of leftover air and the anatomical dead space, we only get about 70% effective ventilation. Now let's say I am thinking about the um, our our mid trimester exam, and I start to freak out, and I have a panic attack, and I'm starting to just really get super anxious, and then all of a sudden I get injured, and I'm in pain, and I'm emotional, and I'm just I just I'm starting to panic, and I'm having this very fast, very rapid, shallow breathing. So if we look at our sort of ventilation rates here, we can see our tidal volume has halved. Okay, I'm moving 250 milliliters of air, but I'm now breathing over 40 times per minute. So if you do the math on that, it's still 10 liters per minute that I am moving in terms of air into and out of my lungs. But only 40% of that is effectively getting into the alveoli because I'm breathing so rapidly and I'm just sort of moving in and out really fast. It's not deep breathing enough to really get into those alveoli properly and have that properly ventilate. So even though I'm moving the same amount of air, it just doesn't even compare in terms of that percent effectiveness. Now compare this to slow deep breathing in which we've doubled our tidal volume, but halved the respiratory rate when we compare that to our normal rate of breathing. What we can see here is that now suddenly, again, same ventilation, uh, minute ventilation in terms of air moved, but it's 85% effective. This is very important for you all as sort of future nurses, people who might be emotional and panicking and in pain. And they are, you know, doing these rapid shallow breaths and, you know, to try and get them to slow their breathing down and take slow, deep breaths because it is far more effective in terms of that alveolar ventilation. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why if they do have that lower PO2 sat, you would just get them to do slow, deep breaths in try and get air deep into those alveolar sacs. get more of that gas exchange there to help sort of get properly oxygenated. Yes, the less sort of effective ventilation in the alveoli you are getting. That's correct. Okay. So we've looked at this last week in terms of external respiration and internal respiration, but I feel it's important that we clarify that again. So external respiration is looking at that gas exchange. So movement of oxygen and CO2 Between the lungs and the blood. Internal respiration is when we have already left the lungs, we're in the blood, we're moving to our tissues. That is the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide between the blood and tissues. So it's very important that we sort of really clarify that distinction. So last week we focused more on external respiration, looking at the movement of oxygen and carbon dioxide. Between the alveoli and our uh, pulmonary capillaries, there to sort of oxygenate that blood. Um, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. Uh, yeah, to sort of um, oxygenate that blood and and move blood. Uh, sorry, move oxygen from the lungs into the blood. What we're going to be doing this week is focusing on more so internal respiration. So look at the movement of oxygen and carbon dioxide between the blood and our tissues. Okay, so the second of our three laws. So we did Boyle's law, which describes pressure and volume. The second of these laws is Dalton's law. Now, what Dalton's law says is Dalton's law is the total pressure of a closed system is the sum of the contributions of the individual gases. Hmm, right. Okay, Uh, let's reword that a little bit. What does that mean? Dalton's law is addition, basically. So if I have um, uh, eight marbles, two are red, two are orange, two are blue, and two are black, okay? I have eight marbles, okay? Two of each cover. So it means two out of uh, the uh, possible eight are one color. Two of the like, each of the four colors there, but they all comprise that group of marbles. That was a really bad analogy, wasn't it guys? That wasn't great. That wasn't really too good. Let me try that again. So basically when we are, (laughs) bloody hell, when we are looking at our air pressure and we're looking at the composition of air, when I've been talking about the respiratory system and moving air into and out of our lungs, blah, blah, blah. I've always called it air as it's moving through the nose you know, the pharynx, larynx, trachea, bronchi, blah, 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 until we get to the alveoli. From there, I stop calling it air, and I start to be more specific in calling it oxygen and carbon dioxide, because oxygen and carbon dioxide are, are a part of air, but it's not the only thing in it. So for instance, with our composition of air, right? So 78.6 is nitrogen, 20.9% is oxygen, blah, blah, blah. Um, Don't bother learning these numbers, by the way. It obviously depends depending on where you are in the the world or even your surroundings. But what's important to keep in mind here is that if we have 20.9% oxygen and I know all of these things combined give me our total air pressure, then I can take 760 millimetres of mercury and multiply it by 20.9% to get say 159 millimeters of mercury. So what this means is, is that out of the total 760 millimeters of mercury, that is our air pressure overall, 159 millimeters of mercury of that 760 is due to oxygen. So again, these are like parts of a whole, these are like a fraction, okay? So if I've got like a piece of pizza, and I've chopped it up, okay, let's say five of the eight slices are nitrogen, Um, one of the slices is oxygen, one's water and one's carbon dioxide. By their powers combined, we have a full pizza because we've combined all these different slices together. Does that make sense everyone? Okay. Think of it like fractions. That's all Dalton's laws is saying is that these are all fractions that make up a whole, which is the air we breathe right now. Now this partial pressure and looking at Dalton's law of partial pressure is important because again, we don't have 760 millimeters of uh, mercury of oxygen. Okay. We only have say 159. That's going to be applicable when we start to separate that Um, our terminology here, and instead of talking about air, we are talking about oxygen more specifically. So to make things just a little bit more tricky and a little bit more complicated, naturally, when we are looking at the air surrounding us, so looking at the, you know, this composition here, that is not the same thing as looking at the um, composition of air within our alveoli. It's different. Why is it different? Why is it not the same air that we just breathed in? We just breathed in. Why is it suddenly changing when it gets to the alveoli? Well, a couple of different things are happening here. The first one is, remember the air is humidified, so we are actively putting water into this air and humidifying it. And secondly, the purpose of us breathing is to ensure this gas exchange, movement of oxygen into the blood and movement of carbon dioxide out of the blood and into the lungs. I've also said earlier that we don't exhale every single bit of air that we breathe out. So what this means is as we breathe in, we get that oxygen moving into our blood, carbon dioxide moving out, but then we breathe out, but we still have some leftover air in our lungs, which means when I breathe in again for a second time, my new fresh air that I've just inhaled is mixing with that older air that's still in my lungs. What this means is, is that the sort of composition of air in my lungs, there's gonna be less oxygen, but there's gonna be way more carbon dioxide because the new fresh air is mixing with that old air that's still in my lungs. Now, this slide I'm gonna come back to a little bit later. Um, What I wanna do now is talk about the third and final gas law but the one I sort of don't really care about as much. Well, I, I kinda do, but not in such specificness like I did with, say, Boyle's law. And this is poor Henry, so this is Henry's law. And what Henry's law states is that when a mixture of gas comes into contact with a liquid, each gas will dissolve in the liquid in proportion to its partial pressure. Right, again, hmm, many words, many syllables. Let's deconstruct that. Essentially, guys, it's the same thing as what we've been talking about pretty much this whole course. Yeah. Things move from high to low, high pressure to low pressure, high concentration to low concentration. This is no different. All this is saying is that a mixture of gas will move from its high partial pressure to low partial pressure. Okay. So think of it just like in a simple simple view, just think of it as like diffusion. Ah, what is partial pressure? That's a good question. That's what we were talking about here. So if the pressure of air around me is 760 millimeters of mercury, yeah, that pressure is due to the combination of the partial pressure of nitrogen, oxygen, water, and carbon dioxide, just to name a few, just to keep it nice and simple. So basically if I'm looking at 760 millimeters of mercury and oxygen is 20.9% of the air that I'm inhaling, then the partial pressure of oxygen will be 20.9% of 760. Yeah. It's a fraction. That's right. Yeah. So instead of looking at our pizza as a whole, like our 760 here, we're looking at each individual sort of slice that makes up our entire pizza. That's correct. So what this is saying here with Henry's law is that gas will move down its partial pressure gradient. Now we also encounter another bit of a snag. And that is solubility. How readily or how easily will something be able to dissolve in a liquid? So again, trying to keep things as simple and easy as possible. I'm only going to be talking about oxygen and carbon dioxide. But straight up, oxygen is awful. It has a really bad solubility. Okay, Oxygen is super not soluble in in liquid. We can dissolve a little bit, but not much. Carbon dioxide, on the other hand, is far more soluble, um, and a big reason because of this uh, is—never oh, mind. I'm not going to go into the chemistry behind it. Never mind. <laughs> but um, with carbon dioxide, that's a big reason why we see it in, say, fizzy drinks or like mineral water or something like that. Any any bubbly beverage, uh, beverage, <laughs> <laughs> beverage, beverage rather any bubbly beverage that you wish to consume, okay? It is carbon dioxide, not oxygen, because carbon dioxide is far more soluble in a liquid than what oxygen is. Now, we need to keep that in mind, that carbon dioxide is more soluble than oxygen, because that's gonna come up again in a moment. Oh, and by a moment, I mean, of course, right now. (laughs) So, when we look at our partial pressure gradients for oxygen, Okay, it is really steep. So if I draw a little graph here, whoop, like this, basically oxygen looks like this. So the partial pressure of oxygen in the alveoli is around 104 millimeters of mercury. Whereas the um, partial pressure of oxygen in our uh, venous blood supply, so our deoxygenated blood, it's only 40. So, that's like a nearly threefold difference in terms of concentration gradient. Okay, so it means again, oxygen is going to move from a high partial pressure to a low partial pressure, which means oxygen is going to move from the alveoli into our venous blood supply here. Now, in the same way, we also see a difference in partial pressure for carbon dioxide. In that the venous blood supply of carbon dioxide is 45 millimetres of mercury compared to alveolar partial pressure of carbon dioxide, which is 40. So it's going to move from high partial pressure to low partial pressure, and it's going to leave this venous blood supply and move into the alveoli. But. Damn, that's a that's a big jump, and. CO2 diffuses faster than oxygen. So even though there's bugger all difference there's only 5 millimeters of mercury here like there's only a sort of yeah 5 millimeters of mercury difference in terms of the partial pressure of carbon dioxide whereas there's like over 60 millimeters of mercury difference between oxygen's partial pressure yet carbon dioxide still moves faster why is that the case solubility. Because carbon dioxide is way more soluble than what oxygen is, it will be moving faster because basically it's more, it's more willing, I guess you would say. It's it's more willing to move as opposed to oxygen, which is kind of digging its heels in and doesn't really want to, to play along. Does that make sense, everyone? So even though we still have like oxygen moving into the blood and carbon dioxide moving out of the blood, you will still note that both of these things, our oxygen and our carbon dioxide are moving down their concentration, uh, sorry, down their partial pressure gradient. They're both still moving from high to low. Yeah, we basically need to have a much higher alveolar PO2 in order to get it to move into our blood adequately because otherwise if we didn't have that it would be way harder to move that blood uh, move that oxygen into the blood which means that yeah we we'd get caught out we'd get stuck whereas carbon dioxide we can get away with that because it's so much more soluble than oxygen okay so oh, and, and to be clear guys i wouldn't i do not expect you to memorize any of these numbers no 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 i do not care that you memorize the fact that alveolar partial pressure of oxygen is 104 millimeters of mercury super don't care okay it is not a priority i just want you to learn that you know high to high partial pressure to low partial pressure and just know that the difference between say the alveolar and venous um, partial partial eh, partial pressure of oxygen is much greater than that of say the partial pressure gradient of carbon dioxide yeah, it's much harder to move oxygen than what it is to move carbon dioxide. That's all I would expect you to know. Now, if we look at a bit of a breakdown here, we're looking at our lungs. These are our alveoli. We're seeing our pulmonary capillaries here, and we're looking at this gas exchange. So we've got oxygen moving in. We've got carbon dioxide moving out. And then what's going to happen is we're going to go down our you know, pulmonary veins into our left side of the heart and we can see that blood leaving the heart we have a partial pressure of oxygen of around 100 and CO2 of around 40. Cool that's all well and good we move our way from the heart we're going down to our tissues here where we see that internal respiration occur so oxygen is leaving the the, the red blood cells and carbon dioxide moving into the tissues and carbon dioxide is leaving the tissues moving into our red blood cells and We can see a huge change now in oxygen and carbon dioxide, which means then as we're going back up through our venous network, we can see 40 uh, millimeters of mercury of oxygen, 45 millimeters of mercury of carbon dioxide moving back into the heart and going back to the lungs to sort of undergo that external respiration. But again, we sort of already knew a lot of this already, which is good. This is just sort of um, putting some some of the values that we've been looking at over here into uh, our pulmonary and systemic circuit, which we've already covered. Uh, I wanna come back to all of this. Okay. Now is when I really wanna talk about the nitty grittiness of um, transporting oxygen. Because as I've said, The solubility of oxygen is pretty crummy. It's pretty crappy, okay? It's really difficult to move and transport oxygen around the body, especially trying to dissolve it in a liquid because it's super not soluble. Now, we are far too big of a creature to rely on just passive diffusion, just to have air and oxygen diffuse into me, okay? It's nowhere near fast enough. So what we need to do is we need to rely on a transporter. We need to rely on a lovely little protein called hemoglobin. Now, hemoglobin is found inside of our red blood cells. And what happens is as oxygen moves from our alveoli into our pulmonary capillaries and moves into our red blood cells, it will then bind and attach itself to hemoglobin. So hemoglobin will hold on to it and basically... Uh, uh, carry it and deliver it to our tissues around the body. Now, I'm going to be introducing a quite a few new terms here. So just a bit of a heads up. So the big issue here is our binding affinity. Now, what do I mean by binding affinity? The binding affinity is essentially describing how willing or how able is hemoglobin to bind to oxygen. So for instance, if it has a really, really high um, binding affinity, it basically will want to grab onto it and not let go. Be like, yes, this is mine. I need this. I want this. I love this. This is mine now. A really low binding affinity is like, yeah. I don't really want to grab this. I don't really want to touch this. I really don't want to hold onto this. Eh, I'm not really that fussed. So I guess my question to you guys is, Do we want hemoglobin to have a high binding affinity or a low binding affinity? What do you guys think? A high binding affinity, Morgan? What's making you, what's making you say that? Ah, Morgan, there it is. You've, you've stumbled upon our issue here. So let's say we have hemoglobin with a high binding affinity. Okay. So it grabs onto it and goes, yes, I've got this. I've got oxygen. It's mine. I love it. I need it. It's uh, good. So that's really good when we have hemoglobin at the lungs, yeah? It's scooping up all that oxygen and binding to it nicely. The issue is when it gets to our tissues. Ha! Rhyming accidentally. So when it gets to our tissues, we go, Okay, Mr. or or Mrs. I don't know, uh, hemoglobin. um, We want you to please deliver that oxygen. And it goes, Oh no, no, thanks. I'm good. Um, This is mine now. I have a high binding affinity. I'm holding onto this oxygen and it's mine and I'm not letting go. Hmm. Uh-oh. So that's not very good for delivering oxygen to our, to our tissues. Right. Okay. So the answer means it must be low binding affinity, right? Well, not really. Cause then low binding affinity would be really good at our tissues. Cause it's like, yeah, cool. Whatever. I don't really want this here. Grab the oxygen. But then when we move the hemoglobin back to the lungs and we're like, hello, Mr. Hemoglobin or Mrs. Hemoglobin, pick up these oxygen molecules. And it goes, eh, eh, I really don't want to. I don't want to grab it. I'm not that keen. So you can see we've sort of got problems with both. So I guess, do we want the binding affinity to be high or do we want it to be low? The answer, we want both. We're going to be greedy here. We need both. And that's where this wonderful graph comes into play. Hemoglobin doesn't exist in one particular state. It has two. It's called its T-state and R-state. So we have our tensed or relaxed state for hemoglobin. Now, T-state is deoxyhemoglobin. This is hemoglobin when it's been deoxygenated. So how I want you to remember this one is T-state, T for tissues, because hemoglobin... Uh, in its T state, is found near the tissues. Now, hemoglobin with a high affinity for oxygen is in its R state. Okay, so ready to go to the lungs, you can think of it. Or really close to the lungs, something along those lines. Now, the big thing here between these two states is oxygen is functioning as an allosteric effector. So what does that mean? An allosteric effector is a molecule that once it binds to something, it causes it to change its shape. So what this means is, is that we have hemoglobin, let's say in our venous network, it's deoxygenated and it's moving back up to the lungs. T-state has a low affinity for oxygen. It doesn't really want to bind to it. So it's kind of like the, I mean, I'll throw it away. I'll give it to the person. I don't really want it. But then it gets another oxygen molecule and it goes, "Eh, I mean, oxygen's okay, I guess, as it's beginning to transition from its T state to its R state. So then it gets another oxygen molecule and it turns more into its R state and it goes, yeah, okay. I mean, I guess I can see the upsides of oxygen. It's pretty cool. And then it says it has all four oxygen molecules bound to it and it goes, yeah, never mind, man. Oxygen's dope as hell. What was I talking about? I love oxygen. Give it more. So what that means is it's able to transition from our sort of low binding affinity to our high binding affinity and vice versa, depending on our body's needs. So this is... Oh, Morgan, that is a wonderful question. When does it do that? Oh, you're about one slide or two slides ahead of me. <laughs> that is what we're going to be talking about next. How does it do this transition? Um, the, the how... And the why we're going to talk about in a moment, the what is oxygen. Oxygen is what is controlling this transition of hemoglobin between its T state and its R state. So as we can see by this graph here, like this is just explaining why high affinity is super bad, low affinity is super bad. But if we can transition between the two, we can get the best of both worlds. Now this is where I'm going to explain the Bohr effect. So Morgan, this is the how, how does it do this transition? So when we're looking at our uh, hemoglobin going from T state to R state, this is going from deoxygenated, like what we can see over here, going from deoxygenated to oxygenated. How does it do this? It just moves to the lungs because there is a higher partial pressure of oxygen in the alveoli, in the lungs, which means basically you're just forcing oxygen molecules onto this hemoglobin and making it oxygenated, okay? So now it's in its R state, all right? And it's got that good binding affinity of of oxygen to that hemoglobin, rad. Now, I guess the problem is, how is it that when we get to here, when we get to our tissues, we make it go, okay, That's cool and all, I'm glad you love oxygen and you're holding on to it, it's now time to deliver it. One of the ways is, whoa, whoopsie doopsie, let me, uh oh, how do I fix this? Ah, there we go. One of the things is through the Bohr effect. Now what the Bohr effect states is that as we lower the pH, so as we get more acidic, the binding affinity of hemoglobin will go down. So our body is normally around sort of pH of 7.4. So if I drag a line, whoa, trying to keep the line straight. (laughs) Across like so, that's probably around 70%. Now, if I compare this to pH of 7.2, we see a big difference there in terms of that saturation. Ah, it's not the pH of blood uh, directly. It's more so the pH of our tissues, which I'll explain how we're able to do that in a moment. So what we're essentially looking at here is as the pH goes down or as we get more acidic, Okay, as we're increasing that acidity, the binding of oxygen to hemoglobin is going to go down. So in other words, we've got our hemoglobin molecule that's basically like a courier. It's holding on to our parcel. It's holding on to it very good and tight. And it loves the parcel and doesn't want to let it go until it gets to near our house. And then what we see is our pH is, say, changing from 7.4 to 7.2. Oh, and that makes our postie very nervous. He starts getting sweaty hands and he can't hold onto our parcel well enough. Okay. So he drops the parcel off at our place. So what this is trying, what I'm sort of trying strangely to, to explain here is that as we get more acidic, the binding affinity or how badly hemoglobin wants to hold onto and grab onto oxygen molecules is going to decrease which means that we're going to get an increase in oxygen delivery to our tissues. Yeah, Morgan. pH and oxygen concentration is what will cause it to change from T state to R state or R state to T state. No, it would change to T state. So what's happening here is that in the lungs, our hemoglobin is going to be in its R state because we want it to scoop up all those oxygen molecules and grab onto them and hold on tight. Now it's able to do that, okay? We can push it into its R state by basically just throwing oxygen molecules at it because we have so much oxygen in our alveoli. The problem then is how do we turn it from R state back into T state? How do we get it to sort of get rid of those oxygen molecules? That's where this Bohr effect comes in. So if we change the pH, it helps lower that binding affinity Get ridding, getting rid of those oxygen molecules, which is causing it to convert towards a T state. That's okay. So guys, what we might do is let's take a quick um, 10 minute breather here, stand up, stretch your legs, grab a drink, do what you need to do. And what we'll do is when we come back, we shall resume looking at um, the Bohr effect and looking at hemoglobin.